Hello, and welcome to Asia Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm senior editor Naka Kondo, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today is World Oceans Day, and we're going to talk about the ocean. I've been involved in the Economist Group's sustainability and ocean initiatives. The Economist Group launched the World Ocean Summit in 2012, and have been bringing together various stakeholders from NGOs, governments, civil societies around the world every year. Ocean has become one of the group's largest and truly global initiatives, particularly emphasized by our recent launch of the Back to Blue Ocean Initiative with the Nepon Foundation, where the aim is to engage a much wider audience in and around ocean health, and in particular, pollution in the ocean. The ocean is drowning in plastic. 11 million tons enter the seas each year, and research suggests that without dramatic action, this could double or nearly treble within the next two decades. To most people, ocean pollution is invisible, but the issues we see in the ocean originate on land. The ocean is not a separate entity. It's connected to our rivers, from which a vast amount of plastic debris and chemical pollution pour into the ocean. But we rarely think where all of this ends up nor have a very good understanding of the impact it has on biodiversity, the ecosystem, our economy, and to our lives. So on that note, we're glad to have Tom Peacock-Nazel, founder of Seven Clean Seas, and his colleague, Ali Khadi, on our show today to talk about how they contribute to solving these issues. Welcome to the show, Tom and Ali. Hi, Naka. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's great to be here. To start things off, Tom, could you give us a quick introduction on how Seven Clean Seas was founded, your goals and missions, and what do you do to achieve them? Yeah, so Seven Clean Seas, we're about three years old now. We're based in Singapore, which is ideal because Southeast Asia is unfortunately the heart of the ocean plastic pollution issue. And we very much started around education, working with communities to understand the damage that plastic pollution is doing to marine ecosystems. And if you fast forward to where we are today, we've come so far. We very much have the mission to develop a scalable funding mechanism, one that will allow us to generate capital, which we can then deploy across ocean cleanup projects, both stopping plastic leaking into the environment in the first place and recovering plastic that has already leaked into the environment. And the way we do that is through the sale of plastic credits. So we work with organizations to help them understand the level of plastic that they're using, try and make recommendations for reduction of unnecessary plastics. And then once we have this necessary level of plastic that we see that we're struggling to to make any more reductions on, we can actually look at offsetting that. That means essentially for the company to invest in a project that tackles plastic pollution in some of the world's worst polluted locations through our projects to actually offset their own plastic consumption habits and and requirements. Thank you. Now, that sounds really interesting. But, you know, when you say Southeast Asia is the heart of ocean plastics issue, how bad is this issue um, in Asia and why do you think that is? In 2015, there was actually a very famous study, the most famous study uh, research paper in in the whole of the kind of ocean plastics world. And that was from Jambak et al. 
And she stated that the top six most plastic polluting countries are actually all in Southeast Asia, with the exception of Sri Lanka, which was in, in South Asia. And really, if you're looking at the sources of the issue, a lot of it comes down to the fact that economic development has brought a lot more wealth to these nations, uh, which is a, a really good thing. And they're actually able to kind of access a lot of the products that the more developed world has had access to through plastics. And unfortunately, at the same time that this development has happened and you know people are, are being able to afford um, some of the products that that do contain a lot more plastic than, than their traditional alternatives, the infrastructure investment hasn't kept up pace. And what we see time and time again is major um, communities, major kind of urban areas with high populations, high plastic consumption, and really inadequate or ineffective waste management infrastructure. And when you've got mismanaged waste because of ineffective infrastructure, that waste will enter the natural environment inevitably. And a lot of the research that is being published at the moment is showing that a lot of this mismanaged waste that leaks into the natural environment onshore on the land will eventually leak into water bodies like rivers and then be transported to the ocean. So we've got this kind of combination of, of um, growth and success and prosperity with maybe the investments into waste management just not keeping pace. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about uh, the specific projects you've been uh, working on when you say, you know, identifying unnecessary plastics um, and what kind of impact you're achieving through um, your activities? So in terms of the work that we actually do and the projects that we have ongoing, there's two that really stand out. Now, the first is in Indonesia, in the Riau Archipelago. Now, this archipelago is absolutely stunning. It's actually bordering with one of the largest marine protected areas in the whole of Indonesia. And unfortunately, it's absolutely inundated with ocean plastic pollution, both domestically generated and also given its location at the tip of the South China Sea. A lot of it is from further afield as well. What we're doing there is essentially hiring people who lost their jobs because of COVID-19. So it's about creating that social impact, as much social, socioeconomic benefit as possible from an uh, organization and a, a project that traditionally might only look at the environmental impact of, of removing that plastic. And it's been an absolutely huge success, I'm, I'm happy to share. And we're in this transition at the moment where we're scaling up from having one collection crew team on the ground doing huge amounts of work to actually building the first plastic waste infrastructure in the whole of the Rio Archipelago for plastic aggregation and recycling. So it's about transitioning from just doing cleanup based work, which is very downstream impact, to actually trying to stop it getting in at source. And that can't be done without large investments. And it's nice to see that a project that we've been working on for, for over a year now has gone on this journey from just environmental cleanup and formalized employment of, of people who were really in need of, of work to actually looking at big picture opportunities and, and, and investment into a materials recovery facility. And this is essentially the process we want to go down with all of our projects. You know, you start on a community level, you then build up the knowledge you need in that location to then justify building whatever infrastructure is needed, whether that's 
a materials recovery facility or thinking even bigger, the full value chain of, of plastic recycling. So you literally give plastic in that location a value because it can now be recycled. And it makes a huge difference um, environmentally, of course, but but again, on, on, on the social side. And I, I just want to stress that because it's so important to us. I think to date, the project has actually recovered over 150,000 kilos of ocean plastic today, which I'm so proud of. And because we're scaling up and, you know, Microsoft actually have come on board with the project to, to help us fund the, the scale up of this materials recovery facility, we're actually expecting to recover over 500,000 kilos by the end of the year. So big things coming on that project. And the other project that I, I briefly mentioned is really focusing on rivers. The most up-to-date research is showing that over 70% of ocean plastic actually travels through a river before it gets there. It's mismanaged on land, gets washed into a river and, and will end up in the ocean. So if we're looking at a return on investment, sometimes it's actually better to build uh, a one-time, a one-off infrastructure in these rivers that can capture the plastic before it ever gets to the ocean and recover it in a location where you don't have to put in much effort. You know, a river has this beautiful profile that it's got a flow and that flow does all the hard work. So we just have to get in the way with the correct infrastructure and we can stop a, a vast amount of plastic reaching the ocean. And the system that we've designed actually has a one and a half million kilo capacity per annum, which is up there with some of the most polluted rivers in the world. So it's going to be able to have a an enormous impact and, and we just can't wait till the end of this year when it's it's fully built and, and getting ready to be installed in either in either Thailand and Vietnam. These two projects that we've done, of course, we're very proud of them. It's testament to the development of plastic offsetting and plastic credits, which we have been personally working on for over three years. You know, we did get some level of endorsement from, from the UNEPC circular in that case study and, and onwards and upwards, I, I hope, for the market, because if this is what we can do as a small startup with very little funding, then imagine what some of the big players can do when they look at this market and they realize they can generate loads of funding, which they can deploy across a multitude of different countries that are absolutely in need of this kind of support when it comes to waste management and ocean plastic pollution. So we've um, come across uh, the Economist Group, uh, your organization, because of our influencer outreach activities for Back to Blue. It's really great that we have been able to connect the dots. So our sustainability team is now going to work with you to conduct a product plastic footprint and leakage analysis. Okay, this sounds really intimidating, but um, can you tell us how the analysis is done, Ollie? Well, first of all, it's exciting to work with you on this project. Um, and just to give you a bit of more information about plastic product footprint, what actually means and, and leakage rates, what, what are those? So essentially, when we talk about the product plastic footprint, we're, we're, we're talking about not the operations, but specifically what you're, what you're selling, what you're putting on the market. So we look at the plastic that's in your product. So in the case of The Economist, there isn't much plastic associated with the product itself, but the packaging. So we look at the primary, secondary, and tertiary. So to put that in plain, in, in plain language, the primary packaging is what directly uh, surrounds the product to, to keep it. The secondary packaging is, is what's often referred to as the, the brand packaging. 
So it's normally where the logos go and other information about the brand. And then the tertiary is, is really to do with logistics and transportation. And what we do is we look at, at, at the plastic associated with the product and its packaging in the different geographies around the world and the markets in which they're being sold. And then we can look at what is that quantity for the company globally. And not just that as well, we need to look at the type of plastic that's being sold in these, in these markets so we can see how recyclable it is. We do an assessment and actually we have a, an, another consultant that specializes in the recyclability analysis to see what the impact of that plastic is. Now, leakage. Now, that's a, another, another question. Obviously, leakage is referring to the plastic that escapes and ultimately ends up into our environment, which we then go and collect through our projects. So what we do um, to calculate this leakage analysis is we, we look at two rates. The first is the loss rate, and the second is the release rate. So what this loss rate actually corresponds to is plastic that has escaped, escaped formal waste management infrastructure. So we look at things such as littering, fly tipping, dumping, and unsanitary landfills. And those are just landfills that just aren't properly maintained. So then what happens is this plastic then escapes from the formal, formal uh, waste channels. And then we look at this release rate. Now, the release rate just, take, just dictates how much of this plastic that's escaped ends up in our terrestrial, freshwater, or ocean ecosystems. And that's essentially what makes up our leakage rate. So those two numbers multiplied by each other. Um, now, really, what we also have to do when we look at plastic leakage, particularly on the product side with the likes of The Economist, is, well, where is this distribution? How does it look globally? And based off of that product, uh, that product plastic footprint, what is those, those release, release uh, or leakage rates? So just to give you an idea, when you know, Tom was talking about the five most polluted countries in the world, we, we, we are referring to that loss rate. Referring back to that, that paper by Jambak, she states that the likes of Indonesia have mismanaged rates up to you know, 83%. Now, we have the likes of, of Qantas and other agencies that are doing more research into this, and that's really where we've, we've come into this, this, this space, and we're utilizing some of these methodologies to actually calculate these analyses. You know, many people, I think, I guess, have uh, tried to tackle this issue, and it, it is difficult, but what's particularly innovative about your approach? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I wouldn't necessarily say what it's what, what we're doing, but how the industry is doing as a whole. This is a, a new area and it's innovative in itself. So we haven't had much leakage assessments in the past, or if they have, they've predominantly been in the research sector. So the new uh, plastic reduction standard by Vera came out, and it's actually looking at this leakage analysis uh, in an approach to work towards net zero plastic leakage. And that's what's innovative about what we're doing. So, you know, during our partnership with The Economist, by doing this analysis and doing this assessment, we can then say, how do we completely negate, negate that impact through our, the investment in these, in these projects? Uh, and that's what's really innovative about, about it. But to add on onto that, we, we're in this space, the release rate is something that is, is highly uncertain and, and has been in the literature. But with these new standards, the likes of Qantas have been working with how do we address this, this issue? Because, you know, to most people, they would think if it escapes proper waste management infrastructure, then it's obviously going to end up in the environment. But, you know, there's actually people who come in and pick up the waste 
Uh, and so not all of it actually ends up in our freshwater e ecosystems, the ocean and the terrestrial ecosystems. And what we, we do is we look at this, this approach that focuses on the value, the residual value of plastics that's leaked. So it looks at the size and what type of plastic is it? Just to give you an example, a large PET bottle is, is worth a lot of, of money relatively because of its high recyclability and the quantity of plastic that's involved with it. So in these developing economies, 99% of that plastic actually gets picked up. And we're using this, this residual model to actually look at, at how, the, how it affects the release rate and then ultimately the plastic leakage. Thank you, Ali. And thank you for really um, highlighting how this analysis is being done. And I think one of the first steps uh, towards uh, tackling an issue is to make it visible, to make it you know measurable. Uh, so uh, this really is great. And I then I actually want to um, go back to what Tom was uh, talking about earlier about plastic offsetting. Now, how does this work? Um, how do you offset plastic? Is it similar to carbon offsetting? So the beauty of plastic offsetting and, and really the crux of, of why it needs to exist in the first place is because it provides a supplementary funding mechanism which we can use to invest in infrastructure and projects that stop plastic leakage and, and ocean uh, and facilitate ocean cleanup and there's a pretty wide consensus that if you want to make the biggest impact possible on ocean health in relation to plastic pollution then actually we need to be looking at waste management and we've got to find a way to fund it because municipalities all around the region who maybe have ineffective waste management of course they know this and they would love to invest in in more comprehensive infrastructure but the bottom line is it comes down to capital that they've got at their disposal so when you're looking at traditional waste management a lot of the value creation out of it comes from the materials that you're recovering so recyclables like plastic aluminium steel and of course plastic being one of them and the problem with plastic is that unless you're talking about pet bottles or maybe hdpe the rest of it has a very low or insignificant value to the point that there is just no secondary processing options like recycling. So we end up in a situation where the material value is too low to justify building the proper infrastructure that's required to stop that plastic leaking in the first place. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to that end. And really what I love about plastic offsetting is that it, it mixes up the whole equation from value of the material that you're collecting equals the amount you can invest in the waste management infrastructure and it changes that by adding another another player in the in 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 the in the equation so it then becomes the value of the material that, that you're collecting plus the value of the credit that you're able to sell from stopping that plastic leaking into the ocean equals a new much higher figure which enables the investment into infrastructure so it's essentially about facilitating the transfer of capital from organizations who have that capital at their disposal and want something in return in pursuit of potentially net zero plastic leakage targets for themselves and allowing us to generate capital at scale and then deploy that across municipalities who don't have the, the funding required to, to do it themselves all throughout the region. So we see this as a as a very powerful tool 
for generating capital and, and stopping plastic leakage in the first place. Now, at the same time, we are very, very aware at Seven Clean Seas about the damage that has already been done by the monumental amount of plastic that's already entered the marine environment. And we will always continue to build innovative projects that are funded entirely from plastic credits that actually recover plastic from the from the marine environment. So an example of this would be kind of nearshore cleanup in, in Indonesia. And one of our more, I think it's fair to say, much more ambitious projects, which is kind of river cleanup uh, recovery at scale in projects that are coming up in Thailand and, and Vietnam as well. And really, unless we had this mechanism, this financial mechanism, which is plastic offsetting in this case, to generate additional capital, we just wouldn't be able to do this. So it's really a win-win situation. The environment gets a big win because we get the capital we need to, to invest in projects to either recover plastic in the ocean or stop it getting there in the first place. And also our corporate partners win because if they are genuinely working towards uh, kind of benchmarking, reduction of their plastic footprints, and then offsetting the remaining plastic footprints that cannot be reduced yet due to various different um, issues, then they can still go after net zero targets and achieve sustainability uh, goals that they're setting themselves for maybe 2025 or 2030. So it's a very important strategy that needs deploying at scale. And if it is done effectively and it is done and adopted widespread, then we might be in a position where actually a windfall of funding is is coming into the space and, and we might genuinely be able to to get on top of this problem before it's too late. So if I could just add on to, to what Tom was saying there, um, with a, a third win is really actually redirecting uh, and having a social impact in these developing areas, in the developing economies, because it, it's not just the infrastructure we're building, but it's it's social it's social benefits. So like un, so what we we do that quite often sets us aside from other actors in this market is by formally employing our waste pickers and paying them a, a good salary, and it, in that sense, it's redirecting social benefits in, into the areas in which we're operating. And I'll be the first to say that. The environmental crisis is also a social crisis. There's a reason why a lot of our waste ends up in these developing economies, such as Indonesia. It's because it's 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 cheap, and normal normally or traditionally waste pickers is an informal sector. But what we're actually doing is formalizing this sector and and having tremendous social impact impact that's actually been recognised by the likes of 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 the UN UN in a case study. Uh, and that's really one of the the major wins for for myself and I know Tom as well. Wow, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. I mean, there's tangible hope, it seems, and it's really good to see your work and your uh, amazing contributions. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you so much, Naka, for having us. It's been absolutely amazing to be on the show, and we are over the moon to be working with The Economist. Thank you, Ali. Yeah, thank you for having us, Naka. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And thank you all for listening. At The Economist Group, we saw a need to improve evidence-based approaches and solutions to the pressing issues faced by the ocean. So we work with the Nippon Foundation to create the Back to Blue initiative, aiming to provide actionable insights to restore ocean health and promote sustainability. If you want to learn more about the initiative, please visit backtobueinitiative.economist.com. The link and other relevant links are in the show notes. 
And if you want to keep yourself posted on our latest research for Back to Blue, sign up to receive our newsletter. We will be launching our research on plastic pollution in September, and you'll be the first to know about it as a subscriber to our newsletter. Happy World Oceans Day, and find out more about what you can do to save our oceans today.